If you are not careful and you let yourself be captured by the news and all the noise, it can confuse you into believing that there is more wrong in our society than right with it, that there are more selfish people than selfless people. Every day there are more people that you know, that you meet, that you pass by, who focus their efforts and energy into helping others, in service to others, to making their country, their community better. They are the teachers, the doctors, the nurses, the veterans, the police officers, and so many others. This is the Strength From Service Podcast. Welcome to another edition of Strength From Service. My name is Jake Palmer. I think we got that part established. Uh, as always, with uh, Jack Zimmerman, Mike McLaughlin, and thanks for joining us. Mike, will you do the honors of introducing our uh, guest Sure today? will. Uh, good evening. Uh, our guest this evening is Dr. George Camaritis. Uh, I've known George, man, probably since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. I was younger, (laughs) younger kid. Uh, We'll we'll get into a lot of George's background here. I don't know if we have time on an introduction to talk about George's whole uh, career, but hopefully we'll get into it in the actual discussion uh, portion of it. Uh, But George is a doctor in psychology, which is a word I don't know how to smell, a spell or smell, apparently. Uh, And George has been working in the area of Mankato and surrounding area and community uh, for, well, decades, not even years, decades, uh, longer than probably me and Jack have been alive. For sure. Alive combined. That's true. So without further ado, I won't waste any more time on the intro, and let's just get into talking to Dr. George, or George as I like to call him. That's good. Yeah. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Welcome. Yeah, well, thanks for thank being you. here. Thank you. It's yeah. nice. It's nice to meet you, Jack. Yeah, it's uh, exciting to have you here, and, and uh, I'm excited to hear uh, um, about all the interesting things that you've come across in life. Well, and, I'll uh, tell you some of them anyway. Yeah, how you, and how you learn from them, maybe, yeah. <laughs> At least the ones you can tell on air. Yeah, so well, yeah, there's, always a, there's always a little bit of uh, that aspect of it, for sure. Yeah. So, uh, let's, so, grew up in uh, New York, is that right? Yeah, Manhattan, okay. Lower East Side. And um, born and raised there, or no? Uh, okay. I was. We were immigrants, so we came over when I was about one and a half, poor, and so mm-hmm. I grew up there. Finished high school, then we moved to New Hampshire, but I went on to college. And where, where, where did you guys immigrate from? Uh, Greece. Greece. Yeah. Oh no, kidding. Yeah, but well, but well. it's it, it's an interesting story because my father actually was Russian. And he fought for Russia in World War One, by the way. Um, oh wow! During the time, well, that's back when they used to have the sulfur gas and all of that yeah. stuff, yeah. trenches and so yeah. on. And and uh, it was a time when you were in until you either got killed, the war stopped, or you got wounded enough you just couldn't get back. Sure. Right. So he was in for several years until the war was over, and he got wounded badly a couple of times. Did and I ever- I didn't know it when I was a kid, but. Looking back, I realized my dad had PTSD about as bad as many people. Yeah, yeah the, Ru- the Russians were hooking and a jabbing pretty much alone with the Austrians and the Germans well, on that eastern they, front. They, listen, it, yeah, it, it was a hard war, obviously, like any war, of course. But um, his problem was he fought for his country, you know, and then the Red Russians took over, the Reds. Yeah, yeah. Soviets. Yeah. And he... Happened to be after the war, he started sailing on a ship. He was a mechanic in the Mediterranean. Well, Stalin, who, you know, from 
we all hear was kind of a bad guy. He was he was a crazy guy. He was just vicious. He he was sort of paranoid, so he put out this edict that all males outside the country had to come back, but when they came back, they had to go through a court or a hearing. Oh, yeah. And uh, most of them got found somehow in the wrong, so either to the gulag or somewhere. Or execution. Or execution, exactly. Oh. So here's my dad, and he's sailing in in the Mediterranean, and uh, at times they had to go to Russian ports. And the guys, it, he sailed on a Greek, Greek ship, so the, the, the guys there knew that he was vulnerable when they came to ports, so they'd hide him on the ship when they got there, and the inspectors would come on. And Well, one time it didn't happen, and and, and this is really where you, it, you know, you understand what, being in a war and being uh, brothers in a war is like. So my dad gets caught by the inspector, and it turns out the inspector was on his squad in the war. They went through the war together. Small world. No way the guy was going to take my dad in, so he let right. him go. But he said, it's too dangerous. Don't come back. Sure. Mm -hmm. That's what precipitated my dad coming over to the U.S., and was he married to your mom at the yeah, time? Yeah, he was married, and I was a little baby at the time. Really? Yeah. Oh, crazy. That is, right? That yeah. is crazy. So then they got to, obviously, New York. They got to New York. I went down. through Ellis Island. I had my uh, granddaughter with me, and we uh, uh, went to find the records. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, That's nice. super cool. Yeah, so my dad came in with 38 bucks. Huh. <laughs> wow. Of course, back then that was a little Decent, better yeah, than today. Yeah, a little better, right? Yeah, but that's how it started. And and um, what did your dad start doing when he got here? Then was he still mechanic. Then when he got you here, you know, he 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 was almost engineer level trained. I yeah. mean, he had good skills. And when he got here, his first job—it's good that you asked that. His first job was in a in a factory that manufactured parts, and his job was to file the rough edges off of these machined pieces all day long. So he started as a filer of wow. parts. Wow. And eventually he worked his way up when he... Couldn't really go down, right? <laughs> he, there was no way going down. <laughs> right, yeah. Unless one way, got, yeah, one way to go, yeah. Yeah, unless he got uh, discharged or something. Right, yeah. But no, the, he became uh, the senior tool maker in the company eventually. Wow. And when the company moved, they moved to... Manchester when I was in my senior year that's when we left New York um, they invited him to come along that's, and, and uh, so it's kind of so American dream right it I mean, was it yeah. was and it was for me too I mean you know I, unless you think about it I can't tell you how many times I'd sit and think God what would have happened if we didn't leave and I grew up in Russia right mm -hmm. And it scares me because uh, it was not mm -hmm. an easy country to live in. Still. Or, or and even, still isn't. Even Greece in the, the post-World War II era with a lot of their <clears throat> political There was a lot of trouble there, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I, I feel, you know, I mean, when you talk about feeling, um, I don't know. Blessed. Blessed, blessed is yeah, the grateful, word. Grateful, yeah. Grateful, blessed yeah. for the turn that happened in my life, I can't tell you. Here I am, I, I've had a good career, I, I've had the opportunity to become a doctor, as you know, yeah. you pointed out. 
When you think your childhood, you know, me and Mike, you know, we grew up in, in small town Minnesota, you know, there's not a whole many, many dangers, you know, out there for us. But when you think of a kid growing up in New York, what do you think of like, you know, like I'll what are some you, of the things that well, you go to? Well, you know? if you grow up poor like I did. Yeah. You know, there are certain advantages if, if you can break out of the ghetto, so to speak. Now, the biggest problem for me was to break out of the mentality that you grow up it, with in this kind of neighborhood where you, you, you feel poor. You don't believe that you got a chance to be like those rich people out there. Uh, you feel different and so on. And what broke me out of it is... I. Wesleyan University, Middletown, Connecticut, were kind of like this little Ivy League school. And it was very forward-looking. And in my senior year, they decided, now this is way back, and so it was one of the first schools that did this, to try to bring in some inner-city kids into their Ivy League campus and see what happens. And I was one of six that they took in. Well, I'll tell you, it was hell for me because here I am with these guys that drive in with their own cars with with trunks full of clothes and so on. I came in with one suitcase <laughs> yeah. and was driven in. I had right. nothing close to a car. And I had to learn to live with these guys and and accept that that the only difference really needed to be that they had more material goods than I did. But we were equal otherwise. And see, that's the mentality that you, you you don't get if you don't get that break out of where you grew up. So so that was a hard thing for me. But here's what was good. Back in my neighborhood, it was a mixed neighborhood. I mean, New York City is just a mixture of all kinds of ethnic groups and so on. So I had friends that were Irish, Italian, Jewish, um, you know, maybe some English-American type. Yeah. And, and we had this one black guy that lived on our, in our neighborhood. And here's the thing. We all were equal. So we never, you know, back in the day where there was so much discrimination, there still is, uh, when I went out to play, you played with the guy that was out there. It didn't matter if he looked like a Mediterranean or an Irishman or, or a black guy. Yeah. You were all the same. Yeah. So I kind of credit that for having given me the opportunity to be able to be more accepting of people despite the differences that I see, because I grew up with differences. Yeah, you didn't know anything different. We're the same, you know. When yeah. you're the same, you're the same. Right, yeah. And well, a lot of, a lot of behavior is learned, right? Oh. I mean, uh, we all start as so a clean much slate and then yeah. adjust from there. Yeah, and so much of it is, and so... And it's and when it's learned, and especially in the developmental years, very hard to change. Mm. And that's the problem that we face when we try to like change the attitudes of people as in our society. But so was your dad gone a lot then working when you were a kid? Yeah, you know, my dad, his signs, his symptoms of PTSD were he worked continuously. Yeah. And then he'd come home and he smoked continuously. And unfortunately, smoked those really heavy-duty, unfiltered cigarettes, and yeah. that eventually killed him. But um, he'd come home, we'd eat. He was always a loving guy, but distant. So he'd go and spend most of his time sitting in the bedroom when he wasn't working and reading. Sure. And so I had really little exposure. He got sick when I was about 16, 
and he died when I was 20. Yeah. So I, you know, I lost my dad early, too and, early for me. And then did your mom stay home then? My mom was a homemaker. She, yep. she And she made our clothes. She did all the meals. She, you know, for starting as poor as we were, we always had food and clothing and a shelter and how many were how many any siblings or yeah i had two brothers okay two brothers one is gone he died a couple of years ago the other guy lives in virginia (laughs) the other guy the other guy (laughs) the other guy from my family that's that's brothers right there yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. was there was there any still with uh so mom was uh greek native greek I mean, I was like, Mom was a Greek, yep. she, but she grew up in Romania. Here's, here's the other problem I, I ran into. All of my family, all my relatives were either in Romania, they were Greeks that lived in Romania, either in Romania or in Russia, Odessa area, by sure. the way, which was part of Russia, Russia back yeah. then. And, uh, and so I, have no, I had no contact, couldn't have any contact. They were powerful communist countries behind the yeah. curtain yep. yep and so i don't know my relatives on either of those sides my mother's brother came over and he came through america and then my uncle settled in venezuela so i've got relatives in venezuela and, and it's unsafe <laughs> to go down there too yeah. so you know i i have relatives yeah i just can't get You're to right. them right yeah uh, you guys, safely you guys pick some winning locations i guess <laughs> so when when you got into that when you got selected out of that six then to go to the to the ivy league school then uh did you know what you were going to school for when you when you were yeah when you were I was going to school for football. <laughs> <laughs> I loved football. That's what saved me kind of from going off on the far end. Sure. And uh, and, and football helped me get into school into college. What was your yeah. position? I played. Uh, well, we went both ways. So I played line. I either played center guard or linebacker. Yeah. Sure. And uh, and I loved. I love tackling. I yeah. just loved it. But I think that's the way I took out my aggression. Sure. Yeah. I think Mike was setting you up there so you'd ask him if he played football. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nah. <laughs> no, that's, yeah. Well, that's my my old running joke all the time when people ask me what I what position I played in football. I say left out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't well, ha- and I don't even have any more running jokes, Mike. Yeah. Oh. But, you know, but 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 it's true because he's got no legs, George. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I don't have any running jokes. Okay. It's okay. You could talk about like, sitting jokes. For yeah, that's right. Years. Yeah, I always, I always, uh, when I go over go do my motivational speaking, I always say, uh, I always want to be a stand-up comedian, but motivational speaker is as close as I could get. Yeah. You know, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So you're 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 crushing it, center, pulling guard, and, and well, I tell you what, I made all city. No kidding. And 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 our in junior year, our team was the all city champs. Yeah. So I, that was my highlight of my career of yeah. athletics. Everything after that was a little bit downhill. Yeah. College I went to had a bad coach, poor team. Yeah. But I enjoyed you it. You had fun. Yeah. Yeah, that was the main thing. So then uh did you graduate then with a psychology degree then yeah. from I went into psychology and you know, it's like in anyone's life there are certain breaks that happen that can change your life. Yeah. One of them was this being um, accepted into the school that I told you about. The other one was, uh, as I started majoring in psychology, which 
<laughs> That's a little bit like snake oil back then, it, wasn't it? it yeah. It's more like snake oil. Yeah. But no, when I started, I majored because I didn't know what to major in. And my father wanted me to be an engineer. I took some engineering course in sophomore year and hated him, so I didn't want to go that way. But And I knew I was going to let him down. Yeah. But um, So I majored in psychology because this guy that was my from my um, fraternity house was going in with me and I said, what are you going to major in? And he says, well, I'm going to major in psych because it's easy. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, that's good enough for me. That'll work. (laughs) Sign me up. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what I I started. But then as I became a senior and got into the upper level courses, there was a professor who took to me and, and the guy, he, because I had trouble learning and and getting involved and so on and uh, this guy gave me some guidance and so on and he really helped me out so when I graduated I went out to work down to Jersey New Jersey by then my father had died my mother was living with my aunt who lived in New Jersey got a job down in Camden as a parole officer So I I worked for three years in New Jersey parole, which was a whole interesting thing. That was back in the day when the blacks truly were second-class citizens. What uh, what time frame is this? This is in 1960 to 60, yeah, 60 to about 63. Okay, so before the Civil Rights Act and everything. Oh, yeah, this came before everything like that, but just, just before, you know. And remember, all of the changes that happened came because of Vietnam. Vietnam created turmoil in our country. The turmoil was picked up by our young people primarily. But as they, and they started, you know, their whole issue was, what are we doing in Vietnam? Why are we there? Because the country wasn't clear about why we were there, you know? Stemming communism, that was Mm -hmm. the concept. Well, uh, the young people, that wasn't enough for them, so they, you know, went into this kind of rebellious state and so on. Well, once that happened, it spread. It's not just Vietnam. It's we don't like the oppression of women. We don't like uh, that blacks are being treated so badly. We we don't like this and that. And it just became a social revolution. And that's what yeah. they called it. Sure. And and it, it was a powerfully changing time yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. so, so and was it was your, all done without the internet and like you it, know, was, it sounds crazy to think about like a bunch of flyers and telephone poles yeah it, a bunch it, of people yeah. telling everybody else yeah. that's right that's right it was word of mouth it was telephone hardly any tv to speak of i mean there's good that can be accomplished by people talking to each other yeah, yeah. Right. holy cow yeah. Yeah. especially if you yeah. can look the other person in the eye yeah. wow yeah. Yeah. yeah and you can read body language and yeah. like inferences and yeah. all that stuff too yeah so uh in camden six, 60 to 63 where is it like juvenile parole or these no no it was first? adult and i learned a lot first of all that was my first time that i went from being a peer with with the minority, the blacks, to being in a kind of a, a the man position. Mm-hmm. That's what I was called, the man. Yeah. And uh, government position. And they were my clients. I, you know, parolees. And I started learning things because I'd 
it was easy for me to talk with the guys. I knew how to talk to, yeah. uh, you know. And uh, I started hearing things like, you know, the reason I, I commit burglaries is because the only jobs available to me are these uh, $2 jobs. That was minimum wage back then. $2 jobs, and it's working for the man and getting pushed around and treated like crap. And usually it's hard work like dishwasher someplace or yep. car washer someplace or something. Or I could go break and enter, steal a bunch of stuff, go sell it, be able to get a car and live without having all that hassle. And then if I get picked up, if I get arrested and I get a felony, I get sent up to, it was called Rawway uh, Prison up in uh, New Jersey. I get sent to Rawway and uh, that's like going to camp because there's a lot of guys I know up there doing the same thing. <laughs> right. And you know, you put your time in and you come home. And I was listening, going, wait, wait a minute, you know, you're doing wrong. All of those beliefs that we had, and it's, you know, just wrong. And so, and then as you, as you listen, you realize, no, this guy is surviving in the best way he can with what's available to him. Sure. Right. And and uh, so I, my attitude about how people do these things. Or why. Really got yeah. changed, yeah. I mean, if you got to survive, remember, it's the old story of the guy who would go and steal bread for his family, and you know they may get punished. But why did he steal? Because he needed to eat. So did his children. Right. And and these guys did it. The other thing I learned, and I I saw discrimination. I I saw some bad stuff. I uh, and I couldn't do it because I, it just wasn't in me. But. The other thing I, I learned is a lot of these men and their wives, and I don't know if they were married or not, but they're significant others who had children and were living in the house. When they can't get enough money or a job to keep the apartment or to get the food, what they learned to do is have the guy leave the house. Then mom could go into welfare and say he abandoned us. Sure, oh, sure. That qualified them for welfare aid. Yep. And again, you know, we sit back and say, well, you know, they sponge off the system and this and that. Well, no, not when you realize why they're doing it. They're doing it again to survive. Yeah. They didn't want to be a part. No. But they go down the road and, you know, maybe a couple of blocks down live with grandma or grandpa or their cousin or something. Because that's the only way they can get enough money. So, you know, I learned some, so to me, it was real important stuff. Yeah, is there a way of getting help? Yeah. That's the, yeah, if, you, if you're not getting help in a proper way and you need, you know, we're all built to survive. If you need to do things to survive, you do the things you got to do. Sure. And that's, that's how I. I uh, had to come off of uh, <clears throat> opioids twice, you know, through my recovery and, uh, Going through that experience, I I remember laying there going, I know why, you know, somebody coming off a of heroin would do some of the things that they would do because uh, I would have done anything to make those feelings go away of of that withdrawal, you know, and yep. and I, I have compassion for people that are going through, uh, you know, getting off of a heroin or whatever drug it may be because. Uh, the way you you feel when you're going through that is is honestly one of the worst experiences of my See, life. See, and and when you've gone through that, you develop an understanding 
of what other people can go through, right? Yeah. Which is different than what you might have started with. Right. And that's why I, in, in my book, I always talk about building your attitude and shaping your perspective, you know, of trying to understand, you know, of, of how other people live and their challenges that they're going through. And but, everybody's life is hard to them, no matter who they are. Exactly. They're all going through something, you know? That's a, to me, that's wisdom, because what you're doing is you're you're breaking through the idea that so many of us operate from, which is the way I see things is the right way, is the way it's supposed to be. It's not true. Every one of us has their way of seeing things and the way it's supposed to be. And that's based on what our experiences were. Now, if we get a new experience and all of a sudden it sort of gives us a way of understanding, hey, that's why this guy is doing that and this person's doing that. And I never thought about it that way. Now it's opened up your ability to understand people that you couldn't understand as well before. And by the way, that's what it takes in therapy. You know, in therapy, like when I started working with vets, I didn't know the first damn thing about vets, PTSD or war or anything. And, And I was never a vet because I fell, you know, and I used to feel a little shame for this. I fell in between Korea and Vietnam, my, my years yeah. for service. And so I didn't, I, you know, there was no draft. There was no nothing. Yeah, no war to fight. Yeah. No war to fight. I could have been in the service. We would have been marching around on bases. Sure. But, but the whole point is, you know, when I started working with vets, I didn't have that experience of being in any kind of war zone or anything. So I had to learn from scratch. There, PTSD wasn't even coined then. Where, where, where did you first start working with veterans at? Right downtown in Mankato. In Mankato here. Yep. And among, actually among them, one of the first vets was Tom's dad. Oh, Mike's dad, yeah. Tom, yeah. yeah. Or I'm yeah. sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. Sorry. Mike's I, dad, I know what you meant. Mike's yeah. dad, Thomas. Yeah. It's my mustache. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not that good, but, Mike. No, but, it's not. But anyway, um, <clears throat> well, the, the only way I was able to finally get to work with vets was just, I, I think the smartest thing I ever did. The first vets that came in, I just couldn't understand what the heck their problem was. So I decided I'll just listen. Yeah. And I listened and listened and I started getting the sense of what they were going through. And, you know, Vietnam vets were, Korea was the first war that I know of in history, of at least American history, where we didn't go to win. We went we went maybe to win, but we backed off of that and then kind of fought to keep up a, a, a DMZ, a zone. Sure. Yep. And so we ended the war sort of coming out of there saying, well, we didn't win, but we didn't lose. And but that was a, a whole new experience for anyone in a, as a soldier, because the concept of being a soldier is. You go out there, you put your life on the line to win. Yeah. Not to just hang out. Nothing else. (laughs) Yeah. Not to be bait. So that was Korea. And then Vietnam got even worse because because there they couldn't win. They can't go past the DMZ. Um, We had all kinds of restrictions on the vets, on free fire zones, no fire zones. And you know this one because I'm talking to Mike. Because... uh, I know and one I, of your yeah, stories where yeah. you were told you can't fire. Yeah. And uh, and he saw the enemy actually preparing um, IUDs. And, and so 
but these guys in Vietnam, they 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 were told you, you know, if this is called a friendly village, you don't go mess with them. Right. Don't touch them. Now, unfortunately, if at night all those guys put on their black robes and came out as Viet Cong and set up all kinds of booby traps and stuff, doesn't matter. They're still friendlies. Right. Well, you know, you start thinking and 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 just thinking. What would happen in my head if I was in this guy's shoes, walking around in Vietnam with carrying my gun, being a soldier there in enemy territory, and being told you can't, you can't uh, well, win? Well, and then add on to the fact that, you know, one of the guys that you serve with the day before gets shot. Got or, shot, Or gets killed. blown up. And, or, yeah. and then you have to pack him out of there. Yeah. That, I'm curious that that skill set. Um, and I would look at it as a, a learned skill set or, or trait of being able to shut up and listen or, I guess, humanize and, and, and it's just It's listen pay and try to put yourself in the man's well, shoes. Well, it sounds like it had, he had some markers with it in Camden, just rolling into that uh, and dealing with a, you know, a population just trying to learn from it, too. But would you say, um, you know, prior to that, I mean, it's kind of a lifelong thing you've been developing because coming to the richer school, the private school, being one of the have-nots, but then being being an immigrant. Well, let me tell you, right from the beginning, I was a Russian. We spoke Russian in the the home. We were Greek and Russian, but Russian was the language my parents. So here we are. We're Russian people in, in America. And before, by the time I'm learning to speak English, I'm also learning that the worst people in the world are the Russians, the communists. <laughs> so here I am realizing, oh, good Lord, I'm one of them. You're like, I gotta pick and up the I'm pace a, on this. Yeah, so I became very sensitive about letting people know I was Russian. Luckily, I could say I'm Greek. Yeah, I'm Greek, yeah, nope, <clears throat> Greek. And I remember trying to hide that. So I know what it felt like not to feel like I can be my full self. Sure. You know, right from the beginning, and then and then I had these other experiences. So, you know, and I and I do believe all of that set me up for being able to do what I do, uh, well enough. You know, well, I, I think any of those those traits, whether it's you know gratitude, whether it's acceptance, whether it's openness to other people's experiences, it tends to start. It's it's not a fire hose. It's you know it's a trickle over time, and if you keep making yourself open to one of those traits, the more likely you are to expand on yeah. it and accept accept them. And uh, I I think the most important thing, and you know you kind of alluded to it in in your experiences, and and I know you sitting with people and dealing with them as you do. If you can't be open to that person and and respectful. Right. You know, that's the one thing I tell everyone in my office. I don't care if they come in and stink. You got to treat them with respect. Right. Sure. And and uh, because they're human beings, and you know, and a lot of them didn't choose to become what they became. They didn't intend to do that. They just got born into the wrong spot. Sure. Right. Not everybody has the opportunity to learn no. and, and build along and, and no. develop those skill sets. Yeah, no. Hundred percent. Yeah. So. So. So coming out of Camden, I mean, at what point, 60 to 63, where you're like, you know what, parole officers, not my bag anymore? It it was after about in the third year, I started thinking, you know, I want to do more than just be a PO. I I liked what I did. But um, and that's where the old professor from college came back in my mind. And I thought and then working with these parolees, I thought, you know, I think what I'd like to do is go be a prison psychologist. Wow. Yeah, forensic psychologist. So 
you knew that you were going to be a, or, you know, you're in the psychology field right now and you went to school to be a, uh, a person that's going to have to talk to somebody about some of their worst days of their lives. You know, nobody's coming to you because they're having too much fun. You know what oh, I mean? Oh no, they don't know. And you knew that you're going into that and you know that you want to use your abilities where like me and Mike, you know, we, we train to, you know, go fight in a war that hopefully we never have to go do, you know what I mean? That's something we hopefully we never have to use. Going into this career, though, you know, knowing that you have to deal with uh, people, some of their worst, you know, experiences all the time. How do you prepare? How do you prepare for that in your career to go to work every single day, knowing yeah. that you're going to have to deal with the worst of people's lives and help them get through that situation more or less? Well, here's the thing. First of all, you have to understand what your limits are. You know, I, I don't have the power to change anyone, to save anyone, or whatever. I. What I have is the ability to help people go in the right direction or make changes for themselves <clears throat> and give them some ideas maybe how to do it. But um, I, I accept my limitations <clears throat> and excuse me, but in the field of mental health, we're not very powerful operators. We, I mean, you guys would probably know this. There's more chance that you're going to find someone if you go to them as a professional who, who's not going to satisfy you or is not going to cure your problem. Right. And, and so, and that's simply because we are not sophisticated enough and learned enough in understanding humans and human behavior to be able to do those things so powerfully. So if we can accept that and, and have some humility about that, then we can open ourselves to listening to, to sort of catching what may be the important things to, to kind of help work on or bring to the surface or whatever. And uh, and you can be helpful that way. So it's like an approach of not fix but improve. Improve. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't think I cured PTSD in anyone yet, and I've right. been doing it for 50 years. You know, like, But I helped a lot of people live with it easier. But the one thing that when I went and, and, you know, I went through my therapy after getting blown up, you know, the one thing that I went into with the mindset of, of – uh, acknowledging that I, I did go through uh, a pretty traumatic situation and understanding that there was somebody that wanted to help me get through the situation That's, that it's helpful, isn't it? Yeah. That wanted the best outcome for me that wanted me to have the best life possible. And after going through the events that I went through, um, I realized I, I had a problem when I would share my story with people or my experience with people and they would be like, Oh my God. You know, this, yeah. I can't believe this, you know, this is absolutely in, incredible or insane or whatever the word was. And I was like, oh, that was, that was Thursday, <laughs> you know? And all of a sudden I was like, I, I think I have a problem, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and, but going into it, knowing that, admitting that I had a problem, knowing that I wanted the help and that whatever I was told in there was, was the best advice that that person could give me at that time. Going in there, I knew that I had a chance at uh, living a really comfortable mentally, you know, a very comfortable life after going through an experience that I did or well adjusted or whatever the word was by using the tools that were actually given to me. And I think, I feel like a lot of times, uh, people go into a, a therapist going, well, we're going to give, let this guy have a shot at trying to fix me. No, it's like, he's going to give you the tools to he's fix gonna myself. He's going to give you the tools. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and, and it's, and you're correct. The, the only thing that can work for you is for you to be able to get the tools 
to adjust yourself to your new life and make the best of it and feel okay about it. Yeah, because one of my really good mentors, uh, he would always say, seek understanding, you know, try to understand. And I feel like that is what we need to go into mental health appointments uh, with is trying to seek the understanding of why am I having this or what is this happening and what can I do to, to help you, remedy you, this myself? Yeah, I would say, though, to your point, though, on that, that vein, I mean, you, you, you touched on it that once you understood that somebody actually gives a shit about you, the effect that I had on you, but you, you have to come from a place where somebody has given a shit about you before to really understand it. And, and, and you have to, that person has to be able to show you that. I mean, you know yourself, you know when someone is genuine in oh, dealing with you versus like putting on the doctor air or something like that. Right. And, and that's a huge thing, especially for a vulnerable person who, first of all, probably doesn't have a lot of trust in you sure. until you prove yourself, you know, especially like veterans. Yeah. <clears throat> the first question I used to get asked is, were you in the service? Right. No, I wasn't. Well, it was based on how can you help me? Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. that was kind of my mindset in the beginning because you have so many people tell you that that, that story was insane or that story was crazy or I, I can't even imagine, you know? Well, how am I going to go sit down with somebody that has never experienced these things or you, you're not even going to know what I'm talking about or how I was even feeling? You know, that's, that's the feeling you have. But in reality is, is you can hear me out. You can understand what my situation was and then help me yep. with the tools. that you, you never had to be there. You can just give me the tools that I need to help cope with the things and, that and, I've gone and through. And part of the tools is for you to recognize that someone is making an attempt to, to A, someone is respecting you for who you are and the way you are and making an attempt to help you out in whatever way they can. Yeah. Because that's like that bond that you can set up with another human being and you know they're not against me they're with me they're on my team they're on my side they're helping me out and I think that's that's been a key and you know um, <clears throat> a lot of servicemen have come to places like our clinic down here because when they go up to a big VA it was very impersonal. I remember, I remember the, the first one I got, and this isn't a, a shot at, at the VA or anything. I've, I've had great uh, treatment and care through them in a lot of, lot of uh, spheres. But when I first came home, you know, 24, 25-year-old infantry Marine, and the first person they put me with is a middle-aged female non-veteran that, you know, tells me it's okay to cry in here, and I got up and walked the hell out. <laughs> and then I, I went and saw uh, George, and, and somebody gave me a piece of advice um, when it comes to, you know, mental health and, and therapy. It's, you know, the, the service is always good. It's just the person that's in front of you in the service, and you have to have some sort of connection. And if you don't connect with a therapist or the counselor you're talking to, well, go find another one. You have yeah. to have, yeah. you don't have to be buddies, you don't be slapping each other on the back, but if, if you just the person gets under your skin. There's nothing therapeutic about that. Right. So in the meantime, I went and I went and saw George just for a little bit in that gap there. And I remember uh, opening up, and I don't remember what we were talking about. And I, I dropped a, sorry, Jake, I dropped a fuck uh, right away. And I was like, I apologize for swearing. And, and George goes, ah, I don't fucking care. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this is going to work. Yeah, this, be all right, yeah. this is my therapy. So uh, <laughs> it worked out well. But I, I you know, but before we go too far down the, uh, that, that whole rabbit hole, because we yeah. can go off on that, Absolutely. I'm still kind of interested that transition from Camden into the, the prison. And then were you actively seeking out your doctor well, then at that he, point? Or here's what? what happened. I decided when I wanted to 
become a prison psychologist, I realized I had to go back to school. So I contacted the professor back at Wesleyan and talked to him, and he said, oh, you, I got a friend who runs a department at University of Nebraska. You got to get a hold of him. Well, I, I thought, Nebraska, are you nuts? Here I am <laughs> yeah. living on the East Coast. Yeah. So I applied to, to, to the schools in California and so on, and I applied to Nebraska. Well, as it turns out, there are deadlines schools set up for each academic, next coming academic year. Imagine that. And all the West Coast <laughs> schools had already shut their deadlines, so I couldn't get in for the next year in the West Coast. So I thought, oh, crap, all right, I'll try Nebraska. And, and, I, and I wound up being accepted there. Only one in the class? Nobody else wanted to go to Nebraska? <laughs> uh. Well, I'll tell you, nobody from the East Coast that I knew of. Yeah, I know. But we had uh, nine new freshmen in our, in our entry class at yeah. the university. But, uh, but I will say it was uh, excellent experiences, really intensive. They had good professors. I learned a variety of things and so on. So as I got into graduate school, to sort of come back to what you asked, Mike, I realized, well, there is no such thing as prison, a, a prison psychologist. It's a clinical psychologist or a counseling psychologist. And you can go choose to work in a prison or you can choose to work in a mental hospital or you can choose to have a practice someplace or teach. And so at that point, I actually was learning counseling. I liked counseling. I didn't like the idea of working with abnormals. I did an internship at the state hospital for a while. Uh, I just, it wasn't my interest to work with people that were totally out of touch with life and so on. Sure. And uh, so I started thinking about, you know, what do I want to do? And I thought, you know, academia is awfully good. Yeah. Looks good to me. Nice campuses. University of Nebraska was one of the powerhouse football teams right. at the time. Used I mean, the to whole be. works. Used to it be. It was back yeah, then. Yeah, back then. They're yeah. playing tonight. Yeah, right yeah now. they are. Yeah, Minnesota. Right yeah. But anyway, so I started thinking academia. And, and <laughs> so what happened is this is now I'm gra graduating in 1970 for my Ph.D. So in 69, I arranged about five schools that invited me for interviews across the country. Between here, actually between Lincoln, Nebraska, and West Virginia University, the most East Coast one. Mm -hmm. And I went in that direction. I don't know why. But anyway, first school I went to, I took my family, my two girls and my wife, and we drove. We drove to Kent, to, to um, uh, oh, it isn't Kent State, but one of the schools associated with Kent State. Yeah. Uh, over in Ohio, then? Or? Yeah, yeah. No. Oh, it starts with W. What is it? Wake Forest? That's, uh, I don't know. That's, one of, that's, that's a Jesuit school. Yeah. 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 You remember Jack didn't go to college, and I barely passed. <laughs> All right. So. so anyway, I get to campus, the first interview. On that day, I'm, I'm there like at 8 o'clock. At about 9 or 9.30, someone runs in and says, there was a shooting on Kent State, and some kids got killed. And uh, you, you, you guys know that part of history, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. So, so the National Guard was there, and yep. these kids started doing whatever, and they got shot. Yeah. So my first interview was running up and down elevators and running all over the place because chaos broke out. Right. And I'm, I'm confused. It's like, what's happening? You know, 
So then I get in the car, we finish that, and I go off, and I think uh, Ohio University, not the University of Ohio, but Ohio University, mm -hmm. was the next stop. Well, they canceled. They said, we're, you know, we can't do anything. I go on, I remember getting to West Virginia, and it looked like an army camp. Oh, yeah. they, they had the National Guard, they had Jeeps and tanks and the whole works on campus. And I'm driving in going, what the heck am I'm I? I'm here for an interview? You know, I, I was looking for the ivory tower for yeah. goodness yeah. sake. So I, I had interviews with them and so on. Last stop was Mankato State. <laughs> I get here, and, and I don't know if you guys know it, but by Morris Hall up there, the kids dug a, a grave. And they dug out a grave, and they had a marker, and they were going to have this ceremony for the Kent State kids. So here I go, walk on campus, I see a damn grave site. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Mankato. Yeah. Welcome to the world is yeah. what yeah. it is. Yeah. And, and so, but anyway... Finally decided to take Mankato State because the town seemed like the best place where my family could grow. They weren't actually sure. shooting college kids yeah. in Mankato. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as it turned out, what happened is that's when all the rev revolting and revolution happened. And back in that day, and guys like your dad would know this, um, <clears throat> the colleges just had chaos. So Mankato State, and, and what was happening is, you know, people say, well, the guys who didn't want to go into service ran to Canada. No, that was a small portion. Most of the guys that didn't want to go into service ran into colleges yep. yeah. and got their deferments. Well, so we had a bunch of people at a Mankato State who never wanted to be in college. So guess what they learned? If I call in and say there's a bomb in Armstrong Hall, oh, they're not going to have classes today. And honestly, for a, a period of time, we must have had two to three call-ins a week. And all school was disrupted. All college was disrupted. Then our president tried to be cool. <laughs> and he let a bunch of guys um, kind of trap him in his administrative building. And they all remained there for like four or five days. And he couldn't get out. Nobody else could get You know, and I... I used to sit there and think, what are we doing? You yeah. know, what, what? Yeah. And I'd watch these. Now, here's where my background came in. We'd have some of these kids would get up on, on stages that they set up like on upper campus. And they'd get up there and they'd start this rabble rousing. You know, oh, no, the government. Oh, no. And then they'd use all of the language you can think of. Yeah, I'm sitting there going, watching these guys remembering I came out of the streets of New York and right. like those words uh, fuck and yeah. shit and so yeah. on they, they were they were all part of your normal language you know when you talked if you didn't have one of those words in there people would look funny at you it's right, like yeah. well, don't you know the language uh, right but how can we take you seriously yeah. who the fuck is this guy yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right well anyway and so I'm watching these guys up there doing it and all I could think is you don't have the right. You know, you didn't earn that right to get up there and act tough. Right. And because it looked like punks doing it. Yeah. And and uh, and I remember just getting so angry. And eventually that anger built up enough that I decided I can't do this. So another guy and I got together and we opened an office and I got my license. So that's how I transitioned from college. Sure. To run on your own clinic. To out on of, my yeah. own. Yeah. And I never looked back by 
how long were you at MSU as a professor? Well, I, I worked full-time about seven years. I started taking time off after I started my clinic and uh, went to three-quarters time and then half-time. And then I eventually just said, I'm taking a leave. And at that time, they were offering leaves to the state, in the state, to teachers at all levels, including college, where you could take a five-year leave and come back to your position if you wanted to after five years. Well, I took advantage of that. Mm -hmm. After five years, I never came back. <laughs> yeah. I, You're I probably was, still on the payroll, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> I still have a small, uh, because I got uh, vetted as pension. a, yeah. I, had, I had a full 10 years, actually, overall. And because of that, I, I had my little bit of a retirement fund that I was <laughs> nice. building. It's still paying me a couple of, <laughs> Man. I think, 150 a month. Or what something. do you do with it all? Yeah. 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 Ten-year yeah. professor, you can say fuck wherever you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, today, not back then. Uh, oh, you even had to wear a tie back then. You even had to wear a tie. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but, I mean, I mean, again, I mean, I think that's some pretty uh, stellar uh, self-awareness that you, you saw this conflict and you're not being able to uh, get on board with a lot of that, that campus uh, mentality and kind of theme there where you, you, you started looking for an exit strategy before you did something. Well, yeah, exactly there. so. But, you know, here's the problem, and, and this is what I started saying earlier. You know, in our country, the, the whole idea of being patriotic and so on is a big deal, and it, it used to be a really big deal. And as a guy, you know, you got that macho thing too, and so... When we went into Vietnam War, and I was, by then I was married and had a kid, and in grad school, and I just chose I'm not going to leave my family at this point, because I didn't know what was going to happen anyway, yeah. 65. Yeah. And, um, but, as we went through, and then when I started working with vets, I had this feeling of, like, I, some, some shame. Like, yeah. you know, I didn't do my job as an American male. And it took me a while listening to the vets until I realized that Rambo is only in the movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. attitude of, you know, I'm this big, powerful, beat, of a, beat everybody thing. Every good vet, powerful vet, strong vet, capable vet, you know, the guy who was able to say I did my job well, that I met was humbled by his experience. There wasn't a guy that came back and said, yeah, I, we ran in there and wiped these. No, it was, God, we were lucky. We, you know, this. they did their job, but I've never met a, a real war veteran who's brags. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I've talked oh, to... Oh, I thought when you said in then, I thought for sure you were going to say, and then I met Mike McLaughlin. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm trying to be... Oh, I'm full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing, Mike. Yeah. Uh, no, but that's really true. And that really... And when I heard vets talk about that, it really changed my whole attitude from feeling somewhat shameful and, and so on to thankful. Right. It's like, holy mackerel, I was one of the few males in this world who didn't have to be in a war. Well, and so we, we kind of looked at it the other way. Actually, when we started uh, this podcast or when the discussions came out for like the theme of it was 
uh, an individual said, man, I really wish I would have served. And the individual was volunteering in the community, uh, was coaching and said, no, man, that you're the community that makes guys serving and going away and gals serving, going away worth serving. If we have nothing to come home to and we don't have that fabric of service and he started listing it off, you know, high school wrestling football coaches for the, the nurses, the doctors, the clergy uh, men and women, the volunteer firefighters in small towns like Cleveland or Madison Lake or, or Eagle Lake, first responders, or just that neighbor down the street that knows that, you know, the single mom doesn't, doesn't have, have somebody there to help out with the, the kids. And I'm going to, I'm going to take the, the boys out and, and do something. That, for that's them. really a good point. That is the connecting factor yeah. between all, all of them, isn't it? Cause then there's no point for us to serve if we have no, nothing to come back to. And so or nothing that you were serving for. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. Right. no purpose. And, yeah. and I think it's maybe, you know, obviously Hollywood and the Rambos and all the other stuff out of the world that have kind of direct that, Hey, that service is, you know, that's military service. But I think those that silently serve their community and, and when you inter what intertwine all that together from community to community, their country, they don't think of it as service, but they're, they're really, yeah. The only difference is gradations of danger. I yeah. suppose my, my job is not very dangerous. Yeah. We all, I think we do that as humans. I think we all do that. We compare everything that we're doing to somebody else, you know, to yeah. measure yeah. where we're at. And, 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 yeah. you know, and it's we're all easy, guilty of it. it's easy to, yeah, to, to make bad decisions based on that comparison. Yeah. yeah. Like evaluate yourself wrongly or evaluate someone else wrongly. Yeah. 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 And I mean, uh, <clears throat> You know, if it, if everybody didn't do their just their job of whatever it is in this world that we were put here to do, if everybody just didn't just do their job. You know, if everybody went to war, like Mike said, there'd be nothing to fight for. If, yeah. If you know everybody wanted to stay home and be a policeman, well, we wouldn't have any crime and we wouldn't even need policemen. You yeah. know, I mean, it's just like, you know, it goes on and it just shows that you know everybody has a role in in in, in this world. Well, and if you, if you've never done any of those things, that doesn't mean there's not something in your community that you don't have something to put your effort towards to make better, to impact lives, and to make your lot better, right? Like you military you always talk about near target far target you don't start shooting at the target way down the range the easiest thing to engage is the closest to you same thing for human nature and giving back and improving the easiest thing to improve and serve is your own backyard your own city your own community your own church your own school your own family focus on that and if everyone does that we're going to keep having a a phenomenal you know and it even goes back into the military where Probably the strongest thing that I've heard as a common theme from soldiers is having each other's back and never leaving a man behind and that kind of stuff. And that's the same attitude. It's like even when we're in the war zone, we take care of each other the best way we can. Yeah. Well, and and being able to, you know, humanize the people that you serve with just like your neighbors is I don't agree with everybody. uh, Everything with everyone I served with, we disagreed all the time. But even if you have a, a, a drag out argument, you let that shit go by it's water on the bridge it goes down and then you work to work together to accomplish what you need to and i think we need to do that a little bit more in our, our general daily lives in this country george are you retired now or are you still practicing well or? i'm i'm <clears throat> still involved i i don't yeah. practice a lot he's um, actually going to bill us for this session <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you all i need is your insurance card. yeah i see you. <laughs> uh, she's not really your granddaughter either she's yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> She's billing she's billing yeah, billing yeah, yeah. That's billing right the clock yeah. Going, yeah. yeah, but she's no. Like, keep him going, I, like, <laughs> Another six minutes, we can get him for another hour. I'm going to see if I can push it yeah, to nine. That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but I, uh, I, I, 
I kind of supervise. I'm, yeah. I'm still the clinical director there. And so I supervise. I, I, I'm the guy who supervises the interns in our program. And then I, uh, I've been what's called a forensic psychologist for a long time. So I do court-related court sure. yep. exams and commitment-type hearings and stuff like that. So I've been teaching several people that kind of skill, too. Yeah. Well, but but uh, I'm going to have to. I, I, I'm trying to set it up so that by the end of the year, I'm going to have several partners that I'm turning over sure. administration. And well, you're everything. on the wrong side of 75 yeah. now, too. So I'm, I'm on a way wrong yeah. side of 75. <laughs> so, so, uh, so some sometime whenever you do retire, what do you, what do you what do you hope to do when you retire? Like, what is what is uh, do you like fishing? Do you like uh, no? You know, you like, know what I. <sighs> You grew up in New Manhattan for Pete's sake. Wow. And if you know what, let me like swearing at people let, and watching them fight. Let me tell you something. Here, here's what happens when you try to be normal in Manhattan. When I was a kid, my dad and a couple of friends decided we were going to go over to the East River and um, fish out some bodies and fish. <laughs> and we went fishing, and I, I threw out my pole, and anyway, I got a bite. Guess what I pull up? I pull up an eel, and oh, the God. damn thing scared the crap out of me. That's what that's what New York. Uh, that was enough. That, that was, was that. enough. Yeah. Ball, right? Then yeah. the rats ate it, and that uh, was the end. Yeah. Yeah. We were wiped out. Rats ate it, we're gone. Call it a day. So I, I just want to. I mean, we're jumped around a little bit too, but uh, when when you split off and you started your own practice and your own clinic with uh, a partner, did you guys stay partners for a while, or did yeah? You? Well, we we actually were partners more for. Um, being consultants and and doing seminars for businesses sure. that's how we came together what kind of seminars for businesses <clears throat> um it was kind of like human services uh um, at that time it was kind of like it's not okay to grab your secretary's butt or something like that well uh, <laughs> at that time i think it almost <laughs> Wait, was okay what? but uh, hold up now but but yeah. we were uh, keep your hands to yourself Jay. yeah we were um it was teaching this stuff on how to relate to each other, how to understand sure. each other, to, to work more efficiently together. Kind of like what stuff. they look at, like emotional intelligence and, and, and stuff. And we now did pretty well. I mean, we we did training to most of the big organizations like IBM and sure. 3M and oh, so wow. on. So we, we did well there. But then I got my license and I started doing therapy. How'd you stumble into the veteran sphere from business? Well, that, to, that was an interesting one. And we got... We developed programs, so we developed some of the first EAP programs, employee What's, assistance okay. programs that companies would have. So, you know, they in Mankato, the way we did it is we'd create a kind of a a, a set of information and, and so on, train the administrators in one of the companies, uh, have brochures they could hand out. And so when someone had a problem or an administrator manager thought you had a problem they could refer them to us and when they were referred to us the company basically paid a certain amount so that we would give them up to four or five um, sessions of of therapy basically but basically to identify as their problem what is it what do you need for service and so we had that kind of program with several companies around town one of them was Hubbard Milling, 
and I, you may remember the story, but the first veteran that was sent to me was this guy that the one of the people from Hubbard called, and he said, uh, said, we got this guy. He's a great worker. He just great, works hard as heck. But nobody can handle him because he's always angry and, and causing problems and so on. Yeah. We'd like to send him to you. So like, I, got the, I got all this rage and no gun. There you go. Well, and and the yeah. guy said, you know, it, he became such a problem that we put him, we, we sent him up to one of those silos that yeah. got the pictures on him now. Yeah. Sent him up to one of those silos to be far away from everybody else. Yeah. They wouldn't have a problem. So anyway, they send this guy to me and he turns out to be a Vietnam vet, Marine. Comes in. I start doing the typical psychological stuff you know not i say it i, I you didn't fly, laugh slide the kleenex like, box across the table did yeah, you no, it's <laughs> like so so how was your home how was your family? that kind of stuff and this guy would sit there and go it ain't my home it ain't my family it's a goddamn war yeah and he'd bang on the table and his anger would come out well i didn't know what the heck to do so yeah. i called the va finally and i said can i send someone up there yep so I sent them up there. They they had an old building there. It was like an eight-story building before they put in the new VA on Fort Snelling. Yeah. yeah. So he and and the psych services were up about I think sixth or seventh floor. Anyway, he goes up there. They call me back and say we don't know what the hell to do with him either. Why don't huh. you just keep talking to him or see him? I, okay. So he came back. And, you know, I try a little more, and he gives me this thing of it's a goddamn war. So I thought, and this is where it started, I thought, okay, what is it? And I'll listen. And I did. And then he starts talking about how it's this thing of where we used to go out on, on a search and destroy or on some kind of a mission or something through the jungle, and we'd get snipers taking shots at us, hit and run, you know, and they might hit a guy, we go after him, but we're shooting into the trees and we don't find anybody. And uh, so they, they, it was like just hit and run, hit and run. And this guy said, we could never get those guys. And so his anger was built up because the enemy didn't present themselves. Right. Right. And then they created all the booby traps and all this other stuff. And then on top of that, he said... And then we'd be told we can't shoot at these people or we can't shoot at those people. So this came, this guy came back with rage, but he comes back to a country who's got a bunch of people saying you're a baby killer and you're yeah. you're a bad guy because you went to a war. And nobody understood him. And they, they not only didn't understand him, they condemned him. Right. And, and and here's a man that first of all my opinion was mistreated i think you put any soldier in a war and tie up tie one of his arms back you're doing him a total injustice if you're going to put him in a war zone give him the everything to win with and let him go yeah right so this guy got he was he was held back and on top of that he comes back and he gets blamed for so much stuff and this guy was full of rage and uh, so I'm listening, I'm going, oh my God, I never realized that this is what happened to him, that it happened to others. Well, eventually, as we talked, he, he warmed up to me and we started getting a relationship. He says, you know, I got a buddy I'd like you to meet. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, okay. 
He said, but he ain't coming down here. He'll meet you someplace in a neutral place. <laughs> so I thought, oh, yeah. okay. You're not so, going to ambush him. No, no, exactly. Yeah. So so we we agreed to meet up on campus right across the street from the stadium, the sure. entrance to the stadium. Right? You're like, this is psychology, not drug deal. Listen, <laughs> that's exactly right. Same, not, only that, thing. Yeah. not only that, it was in the evening. It was right. getting dark. Yeah. So I go up there and I, and here's this guy full of beard with his boonies on, you know, with his yeah. cap and all. And I'm looking at him going, what the hell did I do here? Yeah. You know, what am I doing? This guy's angry as heck also. So I start talking to him, and I invite him to come down. And he comes down, and I start talking with him. So now I'm talking to these two guys, and and I just decided <clears throat> I got to understand what what they went through. So I just listened. Well, they bring in another guy, and same thing. And then by that time, the government created the vet services, the vet centers. Yep. So the vet centers was like this parallel program to the VA. And, you know, I don't know if you know why they created them, but they did because our Vietnam vets, when they came back, they weren't only rejected by, like, the kids and, and a lot of the civilians. They were rejected in the, in the veteran service organizations. Like, they'd go down to American Legion or the VFW. Of course, they were wearing long hair and yeah. mustaches and stuff like that. They go down to those places, and unfortunately, the old World War II guys who were proud mm-hmm. of their war and the fact that they won and what they did would sit there and they'd they'd give these guys crap. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, here's men that, hey, we're your we're your we're your combat buddies here. Yeah. You know, just different war. We're your successors. Yeah. 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 And and but you're not accepting us, so they got rejected there. They go to the VA and the VA. Uh, pretty much discounts a lot of what they say and at yeah. that time there was that idea it wasn't a war it was a it was a conflict conflict a policing action police yeah. action yeah. policing action but right. conflict right and you know you talk to a soldier from that day and and they it gets them livid it's like yeah well it was a conflict where people got killed pretty easily yeah and uh, so anyway um so when the va started the vet centers they wanted to have outreach programs in some communities and one was mankato well because i had contact with the docs up there sure they told the vet centers to contact me and see if i do it and i did i said i would so i created a contract with them and i became a vet center outreach program down here and that's how i started getting vets sent to me and one of them was tom mclaughlin oh, uh, yeah and uh, and and Tom is a unique character. He's oh, yeah. mellowed a lot. He was one tough son of a gun. Yeah. And uh, you know, no, he, there was no getting around him. If he saw something, you're going to deal with it and, and directly. You know that. Yeah. You probably yeah. know that. But anyway, uh, my wife's listening, probably nodding her head about yeah. me right now. Yeah, too. yeah. Well, you're to chip yeah. off the old block. Yeah. But anyway, <clears throat> first. So we had to do it in groups. That was the original idea. We do groups. And were these your first groups? First group. Oh, really? First group, I had about 13 vets, all of them from the war, from different, you know, Army, Navy, uh, Marines, different zones of the war, different time periods. Uh, But anyway, same 
same problem, PTSD. So they're all there. And we're, you know, I try to, you know, I'm trying to learn how to do it, but we're working at trying to do things. One day, Tom, so their guys are kind of checking each other out and being careful and whether they trust each other or not. And, but they're telling their stories. And uh, so this one guy tells a story and afterwards Tom comes up, he says, that guy's a phony. <laughs> he says, that guy's a phony. And I said, why? Well, he said, you know, I don't know uh, what it's like at this yeah. point, but, but he said, well, because when he said that he was a point man for his unit when they went out on a patrol or something, and he carried the M60, he said he's full of crap. No point man ever carried an M60. You couldn't because you're on point. You got to be ready to move fast. And an M60 is this huge machine gun yeah, that you're right. carrying. It's very valuable. It's too much of an asset to jeopardize. Right. Yeah. Well, and to yeah. jeopardize. Besides which, you also had a guy who had to walk with you because he carried your ammo. Right. And, and so Tom tells me this. And I can't remember how it went, but I think the next time we all came back, this guy came back, I think. And Tom asked him a couple of direct questions. <laughs> Group ended. Never saw the guy. Yeah, that yeah. was that. Yeah. <laughs> so Tom flushed him out. Yeah, you know? and uh, and I remember that was a strong lesson for me. I thought, okay, so that means that there's still people even in the in this combat community who are wannabes. They call them wannabes, yeah. right? That that wanna be a combat veteran when they weren't mm -hmm. sure so yeah and i, and I think uh i mean that still uh holds true at least for the 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 saw or the 240 you don't put that on point so that'd be still something that's yeah. in doctrine but so that still ended pretty amicably for calling out a phony ever ever have an incident with that where it escalated to like guys I going did. at I, each other i, I had one time <laughs> We, we happened, luckily, to be in a room where there's this big table, so we sat around the table. And a couple of guys got at it. They actually tried to get over the table and grab each other, and the rest of the guys had to pull them back. But we'd get into—we'd have some pretty pretty hefty, you know, arguments, conversations. It's just different views that people had on certain things. Yeah. And, you know, they get all caught up in their view, and then they— to get too excited believe in it yeah. but then i had these unique experiences like we had a meeting one time and we brought a bunch of guys together because i i think that's when um um wellstone um oh, I, I think wellstone. that's when wellstone was already senator and wellstone really wanted to connect with veterans so he would go to like he came to our community and met with a bunch of guys that came to my office yeah. and so on so and i think we were preparing trying to get guys together to, to meet with wellstone and talk to him because he'd listen these guys come together in this big room must have been about 20 or 30 vets and as we're talking one guy looks at another it said and he said were you in danang the guy said yeah Says, were you an MP? Oh no. Yeah. He said, "Did you guard the this prison, you know, sure. space the, it, it, on on base?" Yeah. 
well, I was there, and you're the guy who helped me get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it was like a, a, a really emotional moment because this other guy got put in there for, for smoking pot. They caught him with pot on base, and so they put him in, put him in, in, the, the, in the brig. And, uh, and the brig was flat ground, and unfortunately, the ammo dump was right next to the, oh. to the brig. So if anything happened, there's no place the guy could escape to. Sure. And when they had incoming onto the base, he just would go and crowd up against the, the, the fence or something and hope it wouldn't fall on him, you know? Right. And uh, so, but the, he got forgotten, and his tour should have ended in a certain month, and he just stayed he was stuck in, there. Yeah. He was stuck in the prison. And uh, along came this MP, and, and the guy said, can you help me out? I, I, I want to send a letter to my senator and ask him for help. And the, the guy took the letter and sent, made sure it got to the senator, right. sent it off and so on. And he got a reprieve hmm. through the senator. I'd rather be in prison in America than Vietnam. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, I, I, I remember another story, a guy who was actually sent to... Uh, uh, Germany instead of Vietnam, and it was, he was putting his tour in in Germany. Well, <laughs> when he was talking, he said, "God, he said Germany had good drugs." <laughs> so I got into drugs. We were using it, but then he said, "We'd have guys from Vietnam come over and get assigned there." And he said, "The drugs in Nam were way better than the drugs in the <laughs> Europe." So this guy said. They got me so excited that I actually volunteered to be sent to Vietnam. He gets sent to—this is true. He gets sent to Vietnam. Guy uh, winds up in um, one of the big communities, big bases, and <clears throat> he goes looking for drugs. Well, he gets arrested <laughs> by the MPs. Right. And before you know it, he winds, he winds up in one of the jails Jesus. In, in Vietnam for doing drugs. Oh, my. Yeah, it's, what could go wrong? It's like, man, I think mm-hmm. I got drugs in Vietnam. I should go there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. Uh, and I'll so tell you one other outstanding story. This guy wasn't an engineer or a psychologist <laughs> after the war, was he? No, th- no. I don't know what this guy. You was don't want him building bridges. He's named in start with the, doctor. Yeah. He's the guy that built the tornado towers up by campus. <laughs> yeah, 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 probably. Yeah. That's right. While he was high. Yeah. yeah. We'll just stack them up. It'll be great. I, I'll tell you the other story. I I, I got to tell you is. There was only one man, and I met hundreds of war veterans over these years. One guy came in, and we got talking, and he said, and I, I can't remember, I said, how bad was it? Um, and he said, that was a piece of cake, Vietnam. And I looked at him, what are you talking about? He says, well, listen, I was an orphan, and I grew up in an orphanage. Huh. It was way worse being a kid in an orphanage because the big kids always did everything they wanted with you and to you and made you their slaves mm-hmm. and this and that. And he said, when I got sent to Nam, it was actually a relief. Wow. Sure. That was the only war veteran I ever talked to. Uh, he, that, he probably found some community then, I guess. Or he did. Well, too, listen, yeah. first of all, you're treated... Like one of the one of the group. Everybody's right? treated terribly there. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But at least it's equal yeah, treatment. That's what I mean. Yeah, and everybody's treated yeah. poorly. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's yeah, yeah. You know, well, valuable. Everyone's equally worthless. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
that's great. So but once again, it's all perspective. Yeah, you know, it is. Right. It is. Yeah. And, that, and that's a perfect example of perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, our hell was this guy's salvation. Yeah. That's kind of like when people ask me, "Are you having a good day?" I just kind of smile and, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I am. You know, I mean, it's not not pretty hard to have a bad day now after the days that I've had. You yeah. know, what I mean. Uh, if nobody dies around me that day, I've, I had a pretty good day, you know? Yeah. If somebody dies and, around and, you, you and got some explaining to do. See, and that's hard for people to understand if they never witnessed any of what you did. Yeah, I mean, uh, while we were there, my uh, my brigade lost 135 guys, you know, and felt like a funeral every day. Somebody was, you know, there was a funeral every day for somebody, you know, on, on, the, on the FOB, you know, and, and uh, you're going out and you're seeing these Afghan people that have nothing... Uh, literally nothing. They have a shovel and and they farm. That's what they do. That's all they do. Is they, out in the field, they they have a mud hut with no roof on it. Uh, they save every little stick and twig to try to survive the winter. There's no hot. There's no running water. No electricity. They use a canal for a bathroom. I mean, you come back here and and people people tell you that they're having a bad day or yeah. it's it's uh you know it's just really hard right now or you know we're just things aren't fair or this or that. And I don't want to say I get frustrated, but I just think, you know, you should, you should really expand your, your perspectives a little bit, you know, and, and, and look around you and and look what you have to be thankful for. And one of the things I always talk about is whenever I'm going through adversity or, or my struggles or whatever, I think of the people that came before me, you know, like when we were in Afghanistan and things were hard, you know, you think about the hundred first guys that were in Vietnam, you know, and, the conditions that they were living in and what they had to survive or the guys that were jumping out of the planes in the middle of the night and getting shot at from, and they were lost when they hit the ground and had nobody. Yep. And here I am, you know, walking off up a Chinook helicopter. You know, I mean, uh, I know if I'm wounded, it's going to be, uh, hopefully within an hour that I'm going to be picked up by a helicopter and hauled to a hospital where, um, there's antibiotics and a machine that they can put me in and get incredible imaging. When you hear your stories like your dad's mic that, uh, he didn't know how long he was going to be laying out there for. He was all by himself. Uh, you know, he, there was, you know, and he, he spent, he spent two years in the hospital. I think he said, you know, and I was out of the hospital in two months, you know, I mean, it's all about perspective, you know, and, and the, in the, in the operations and everything I had, you know, how lucky I was to have those surgeons, you know, and, um, I think it's just a a matter of us having to stop and you look know, around. I got to say, you've got a very excellent attitude. And not only that, but I think you got really good insight into stuff because what you're saying, in my opinion, is so important to just having your mental health and having a compassion for people, but at the same time being frustrated by their ignorances. And, uh, you know, this there's always something that could be worse. Yeah. There's always something that could yeah. be worse. All you have to do is look for it or find it. I know one thing that <clears throat> the big change that came from war to war to war to war to our most recent yeah. is the is the technology medically and otherwise that just became so much more improved and superior. You know, in Korea, they only started bringing in helicopters at a point. Most of the guys who got wounded had to be medevaced in freezing weather sometimes or through mountain passes and so on in trucks. Mm -hmm. They were piled onto trucks. And half of them, by the time they get back to base, were dead 
because they either died of just the lack of care, lack of care, and and what they needed, or or they froze to death. Exposure, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and and that's Korea. In Vietnam, we had medevacs with with helicopters, and there was a lot of improvement, but you know, as I've heard it, with our with our Middle Eastern wars, the most recent wars, the the medical capacities that we've improved save people like yourself where you probably would have not survived oh, in Vietnam or Korea. I almost didn't uh, survive in well, Afghanistan. That, I mean, that's my whole yeah, point. Minutes away, yeah. Yeah. So so uh, that that is a, a big difference and you're right. You yeah. know, you might have had to wait an hour or maybe a couple hours or something like that. Those guys had to wait days. You know, and I, every time I do feel down about it, I just think, hey, at least I'm not from Wisconsin. You know, that, was, <laughs> you know, that makes me always feel better. You know, there's always yeah. perspective. Didn't, perspective, didn't, perspective, didn't you, you have know? to go to Fort McCoy? <laughs> oh, no, I didn't oh. have to ever go out there. Uh, but no, I always, okay. I always tell that from people from Wisconsin. I always tell them, I'd rather be in this condition than from Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. you know? That's Jackie's a, yeah, taking that uh, uh, a dip, yeah. I, I just you, went to school there. I was born here in Minnesota. Oh, so, uh, so you're technically one of us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Perspective, I, though, Mike. You had to go see yeah, what the other side lives. I wanted you know, to open my eyes to the yeah, fact yeah. that uh, people live like that. That they 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 nurse babies on high life, and <laughs> yeah. get weaned on the old style. Something wrong with you know, that. Yeah. But, but you know, another point I wanted to make when you were talking about how it's sometimes frustrating to hear the complaints that our civilians make. Yeah, that's that's almost universal for a lot of vets that went through war zones. Uh, uh, there's so many guys I've talked to over time that would say, you know, it might even be my wife. She's complaining about this, and I just sit there and go, you don't know the worst of it, you know. Yeah. Or you're bitching about some, not wife necessarily, right. but someone else. You're bitching about something that just doesn't mean anything, yeah. you know. And uh, I, so your perspective changes yeah. big time. I think as veterans, like especially going through the situations that like me and Mike went through or our generation of, of the of the war, you know, I think we we come home with a, a with a I mean in a healthy way, uh uh who cares so much, you know, it doesn't matter, who cares? Quit quit wasting your you know, because, I mean all the time over there you see stuff that the first day that you got to Afghanistan, you're like, That that really bothers me that these people have to live like this. We should do so you know, and like you have all these things, you know, and then you realize that you try to go help them, and they don't. They don't. They don't want the help. They want to live like that. So it's and, like. Stop. And do you know how common that is? It's similar that is to what happened in Vietnam. Yeah. They were also very poor, indigent, live off the ground. Yeah. Very primitive in, in a sense. Yeah. And uh, and they were happy. They you know they are not the ones who started the war or yeah. wanted a war. They never asked for us to show up. Nor did the people that lived in those huts that you're talking about in Afghan. Right, you know, and they never asked us to show up. But, you know, you, you see the, you see these things and, and it uh, really, you know, there's so many things that happen every day that somebody's like, did you hear about this? And it's like, who cares? It doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect your life. <laughs> then stop wasting your mental capacity on it. You know, it, does, it doesn't matter, you know. And I feel like I feel like a lot of things that I've seen and, and a lot of things that happened to me over in Afghanistan, I kind of really attach that mentality to a lot of those experiences of it doesn't matter. It's not going to happen again. You know, I mean, there's no I mean, I don't think at least there's no Taliban sneaking up on me at any point in time during my normal day living here in America. Uh, what happened there happened there. And 
I came home and now I'm excited that I get to live the rest of my life and, and, you know, try to be the best dad I can and try to be the best community member I can. And, and, and even help some people out yeah. in the process. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. And try to help, you know, um, help people live a better life because of what I had to go through. Well, focus your effort on something you can actually impact for the good versus, yeah. you know, focus well, on something at, you can't impact. You know, and I'll tell you something. I, I've been very, um, impressed and happy about what I've seen develop over the time since I've been working with vets. Back in the day when I started, Mike knows this because I've talked to him about this. You know, I got to know VSOs in most of our counties around this area. We, we Back then, VSOs were somebody, somebody on the commissioner's f board friend who got this cushy job government job that's called veteran service officer and they might have been a service guy but they weren't taking the job because they wanted to help people they were taking a job because it was a retirement a solid and not hard governmental job back then <clears throat> and i watched some vso's do so poorly for the men that they and and their job is one of the most critical jobs because they're the first person the vet should have contact with right. as he seeks help yeah. back home and uh i've watched such poor stuff well the reason i'm saying i feel good about it now is i've watched a turnover guys like him yeah mike and yeah. the other guys that are wasika st peter yeah, and so on. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and somehow we've been able to get to a place where we're putting people in that have a commitment, you know, and are able well, you to. Well, you know, honestly, though, George, that the, a lot of that stems from the things that you've done, you know, um, you know, with Tom, uh, you know, helping him, you know, through, through the things that he had to go through. And, uh, you know, we all went overseas and I never knew Tom before I got wounded. Uh, I come home and and Tom's there, like, well, what are you gonna do now? What's what, what's your plans now? You're not just gonna sit around the rest of your life, you know? And and you that's know. what Tom's wife used to say to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, full, you know, full circle. Still you know, does. But, yeah. but you know, if if that wouldn't have happened, you know, uh, it there and Tom really was kind of the glue to all of us guys that were were coming home that were like, hey, you know, you guys gotta look because out for he, each other because he went through the worst of it, right? Yeah, I mean, he was he yeah. was he was like our. He was our 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 uh, elder that was kind of you know leading us through life, saying, "Look, now you guys all need to get together. You guys need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. Because if you don't, you're all going to fall apart. And at the end of it all, you're not going to have anything or anybody." And Tom and Tom was the right man to do that because he faced his own choice point. You know, he he came back. He got into alcohol. Yeah, he was kind of a hard ass wild guy. Yeah, uh, defiant as heck. And so on, and and uh, and he made a choice. Yeah. And I think your mom, I, I I think his wife was quite helpful. She just, she she's a hard, hard tough woman. But I'll tell you what, he needed that. Yeah. And they clicked, and she was a real support person for him. But he made the shift, and instead of going into negative type of behaviors, he put his energies, as we know into governmental type work yeah. and and into service work. He's been big in the yeah. VFW and so on. And this guy 
uh, has made an impact. Sure. Yeah. And, and not only, but I guess what I was getting at is by you initially starting, you know, to work with these veterans, you didn't even really realize how many generations or how many people's lives well, this is really going to affect I, I, at I the end of it I appreciate hearing yeah. that, and that really makes me feel, again, kind of humble. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, I, um, I can say this. I loved working with vets because one of the things that I've always hated is, is pretense and put on and stuff like that. And if nothing else, a war cleanses a person <laughs> from bullshit. Yeah, that's the truth. It does. Uh, we have no problem telling you how we really exactly. feel. Exactly. <laughs> and I love that. The guys would just talk straight. And it was like, you know, they didn't even think twice. Am I going to hurt your feelings? Or yeah. I'm just going to tell we, you what we, it is. We don't care if we yeah. do. We're just going to tell you how it is. Yeah. Yeah. What, are, what are those? Yeah. yeah. No, we, they take those from you at Fort Benning and they never give them back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or we're, we're, we're Camp yeah. Lejeune or Camp Pendleton. Pendleton. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, if I have helped vets, which I'm hoping I have, I will say this. They made my life. This, this I have had a life that I would never change. Yeah. At least that part of it. You know, if I came back again, I'd probably want to do the same thing. Well, I think whatever space you're in, having uh, vocal advocates uh, for whatever population it is calling out, I don't necessarily just say injustices, but things that aren't right or things that need to change and do it in a constructive way versus a deconstructive way of like, screw it, everything's terrible, tear it all down. But like, now nah, here's, here's the problem. Here's the bullshit. Something needs to be done about this. Nobody's doing anything about it. Okay, let's get our shit together. Let's work together and then change this. Come with uh, not just identifying problems, but if you don't know the solution, get ready to work for it because otherwise you're just part of the crew. Well, then that's exactly right. You, you got to make a, a decision. Right. It's that choice point. Am I going to be, as they say, part of the problem or part of the yeah. solution? Well, right. that's, I mean, the perspective and everything else, you know, Jack was sitting on earlier, you know, it's what you put your energies into. If you put it into negative and not nothing constructive, you're just going to continue to foster negativity. Get more of it. Deconstruct. Yeah. And that's... Were you in the Army? Yeah. 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 But that's, I mean, that's one of the, I mean, old Stoic principles, either Seneca or Epictetus is, you know, they used to always say, why be angry at the world as if it'll notice? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know? mm -hmm. oh, For real. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be sending your shaking your fist at something and whatever you're shaking your fist you know, at doesn't know. It's, it's <laughs> funny because back to my forensic work, my yeah. work with courts, a lot of times... I, I'm involved in these commitment hearings for guys who got into trouble of all kind. And you look at their history, it started way back as a kid, yep. just fighting the world, fighting the world, carrying a chip on their shoulder, being angry. And it's exactly that attitude, you know, and maybe their pain wasn't in a war zone, but it was in a different kind of war zone. It was in a bad environment that they grew up in. And, uh, and again, you're either going to let it get to you and then you're fighting a losing battle because you're not going to beat society. Right. So you're going to have to give up having a decent life for being pissed off and <laughs> wanting to stick by that. For real, yeah. You know? Yeah, I actually uh, went in to do a, a jail visit here for one of, the, one of the vets that I was going in to see. And while I was waiting out by the guard, uh, guard desk, a couple of the other general uh, inmates were just wandering around coming off some internal working party and one of the guys started you know yucking it up with me a little bit and it's like hey what are you here for you look official and i was like oh i'm the vet service officer and he goes oh vet like you know cats and dog and he was you know being smart and the guard goes nah man he's like veterans like military and more and it's like 
Oh, yeah, really? I'm a vet, too. And the guard goes, leave, leave him alone. Leave him alone. And he's like, go, yeah, well, what are you a vet of? He's like, I'm vet of the streets, man. And he goes, I grew up getting shot at the whole time. And I was like, yeah, man, it's different different warfare being on your, own, your yeah. home turf, you know. And, yeah. But going back to, like, those guys, you know, those ones you're talking about, the forensic uh, psychology or the assessments for is they grew up not knowing that somebody gave a shit about them in a lot of instances. They, they right. grew up... Not, they grew up not knowing in, they had a way out. No, they know? didn't have a way out. A lot of them grew up actually not having anyone supporting them or take, you know, caring for them or or covering their back or anything like that. They had to learn how to survive by by being street wise and and tough. Yeah, you, and surviving. It's you've, survival. You've you've talked to a lot of people. You've heard a lot of different. <clears throat> you know, uh, sides of things and so on. And out of all those conversations you've heard, you know, and, and all the people that you've talked to, is there something that, like, after this this long of a career that you've had, you've learned something that you just want to say, if people only knew? Listen, I'm going to get philosophic, religious yeah. sounding. Yeah. The The answer to improving our lot as human beings in this world can only be in what they call the golden rule, which is do unto others as you do unto yourself. Now, I know I'm going to sound like I'm preaching, but here's the point. This is a dog-eat-dog world. Nature is designed to be dog-eat-dog. I mean, for us to survive, we got to kill and eat other things. And that's true right on through nature. Yeah. So if you take that and look at it and expand it and you say to yourself, okay, well, if we live by nature's rules, we're always going to be doing harm to something. And since we're the kings of the hill, when we got everything else controlled, the only thing left to do harm to is each other. Mm-hmm. And, and so if we let our natural processes take control and, and guide us, we can't ever be in harmony. We can't ever get along with each other even under argumentative circumstances and so on. You know, I mean, and the example continues. You you take someone like Putin. What kind of care has he got for human beings when he sends people into a war zone? And we know, although it's highly covered by, by you know, the Russian protective system, that there are a lot of men that did not want to go to war in Russia. Absolutely. No way. And they tried to get out. They couldn't or whatever. But it was, you know, it it's his war, and he uses people to do that. And, and, he, and, and the whole purpose of that thing is destruction. Destruction to the point where you battered either people or something until you can acquire what you wanted. Well, right. Just Stalin, Mao, and it goes down the system. He's the he's the latest in the line. But my point is, if we could only accept the idea that if we could really buy into do unto others as as we'd want them to do unto us, which one of us wants someone to beat the hell out of us or who who of us wants someone to steal something while we turn our backs or or to do some other harm? None of us. And, and if I would like to have you treat me in a good way, then I should do the same back to you. And if we could only live by that, we would change a lot of the crap that we're stuck in and have been for 
well, since the beginning. Yeah. From the forever. psychological standpoint of it all, <clears throat> will humans be at war forever? Until we can get past that point that I'm just talking about. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Because, because you know, the concept greed. You know, all of this, if you start with a very basic thought that we're designed, we're really designed as living creatures, not different than the rest of them, for only two things. The only reason nature has created us is, and, and, and we exist, is because we had built into us two very basic drives, survival and procreation. Yeah. And we only have survival to live long enough to procreate. Yeah. So yeah. that means the survival of the species, right? We're no different than every other species. We got that built into us. We know what we're living for now, you, Mike. You survive to procreate, you procreate to survive. <laughs> well, perhaps. Yeah. But, but anyway. Can we change the title of the podcast? Uh, <laughs> survival from procreation. So, there you go. But So, so the, the point is, it, out of that, out of those two basic things built into us comes everything, including, for example, greed. Yeah. All yeah. right? Greed is essentially a redefinition of the need to feel secure by having enough so that I don't go without. Sure. Right? Stockpiling, yeah. And once I start stockpiling, you can you can get hooked on that like you do on drugs and now having a million ain't enough, two million's better and then a billion is way better and so on. But how do I get that? Sometimes I have to get it at the expense of other people. And now we start seeing that survival of the fittest thing. And, and so if I can get, you know, like look at the stock market. The stock market is, is basically a place where the dumber people are going to lose money just like they do in Las Vegas to the smarter people who know how to get it from them. Right. Well, in order for me to do that to you, take your money and not worry about what that does to the rest of your life, that's a very uncaring thing. Right. And But we do it. And then, you know, it's built into human organizations. And, it, and, and, and then it, it goes on and it overcomes the concept of helping the other person, do unto the other yeah. something. I think, you this, know, I think the stock market's the precursor <clears throat> of social media. It's a lot easier to be a shitty person if you don't have to look them in the face. Well, listen, yeah, uh, yeah, well, th that's been true ev all yeah. the time. You you have companies that have these horrendous policies. I was just listening to NPR, and they were talking about the housing market in America, and they were saying, today there are a lot of corporate groups that are buying up single-family uh, homes and renting them. Uh -huh. So they're mm -hmm. making it a, a, a corporate process. And they said, and... The corporations that are buying these homes up have it a lot easier to evict people when they don't pay because they don't have any face-to-face -face contact. Sure. It's like I evict it's just a number. I evict a number on a piece of paper, or a name on a piece of paper. Right. And but that's the whole thing in in all of services and in, in organizations. It's so much easier to sit up at the top, never know who you're going to fire down here and do it on paper and let someone else carry that out for you yeah. than it is to go and have to look them in the eye and say, I'm firing you, you know? Huh. And that, and that's, there's an example of that problem. But but yeah. it's, it's it, you know, I, I realized a couple of things. You, you asked this question earlier. One is, I think we all 
at some point make a choice. Like my choice was to help people. Not that I intended it or whatever, but that's where I went and it felt good. So that's where I stayed. And in the process, there's a lot of people I gave free service to because I don't take the rich. I take whoever comes in. And so a lot of them couldn't pay. And I was getting enough money to live on. So I, you know, I gave free service. Well, I've had friends who went into business and their per primary purpose was not necessarily help people, it's get money, make a profit. And I think if we look at it, each of us makes a choice on which of those is gonna be our primary goal. Yeah. Right. You know? And and when we do that choice, then we pursue it and then it you know, natural things happen as a result. But depending on how driven we are. Do you believe that if you chase whatever you love or believe in or whatever, even if the money's not there, sounner or later it'll come if you if you love it enough? Well it'll come in small parts. Like I'm I'm gonna retire soon. I'm not gonna be yeah. an ultra rich retiree. Right. Now um, but it came uh, I let me put it differently. For what I did and the gratification that I felt in the process I've been rewarded enough that I've had a good life and I haven't wanted terribly for anything. The only thing I'm going to die wanting for is my own private jet. <laughs> yeah. And, you, and I, yeah. I never reached that status. Do you feel like at some point in your life, all of a sudden you felt like I want to retire now or like you, you, felt, I, you felt fulfilled in your career enough to be able to feel like you're okay it, to leave? It's weird. No. Uh, I mean, I feel like I've done a lot. But I feel like I can I can still do stuff. I can yeah. still be helpful. Well, and for so many years, that has to be just a part of your like your being, your yeah. person, like who do you, you are. Yeah, I do mean, you, if I if I retired and then tried to watch TV, I'd probably die in right, a year. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's true. Though. I mean, I mean, serious. If you lose the purpose. Yeah. You know, I think you see that a lot with people and they retire and they lose that. Yeah. I don't say they lose the drive, but they have the drive. There's nothing to drive towards anymore. Right. Let me tell you yeah. something. I think I can say this without anyone. I don't know. As a person I know who's my age, who went into his career was with the CIA and he actually grew in the system. He, he, he reached a. On the GS level, it's like a general level. Yeah. So he was high up. Yeah. And he retired And several years ago. Now, this guy was a bright guy, and he's capable, and he, he did a lot of stuff for us, our country yeah. under undercover and so on. And uh, and recently I heard the, the, the guy, uh, you know, either has... Anyway, he had cognitive problems sure he's either got alzheimer's or some such thing they had to put him in an institution and i was talking to his wife and she said you know after he retired he just came home and watched tv he didn't do much yeah and i and and here i am sitting there going geez i've seen that before with yeah. bright people yeah i don't yeah. think you have to be retired to get to that point i know you know especially now uh, vets uh, with a lot of the va system a lot of them not a lot of them always have to go back to work or do anything else because of their injuries. Oh. But then they have no purpose and they, they uh, have no, no reason to, to get up, no drive. See, there's always a bad side to everything. Yeah. For example, the, the VA has a wonderful program of benefit to disabled vets, to yeah. the guys who are service-connected with a disability status. I mean, you get 
really good at 100%, you can live well. Yeah. Right? I, my first exposure to this was with a Korean vet when I started. It was within the first probably five years of my work with veterans. This guy lived over in St. Peter, and his wife contacted me and said, can you talk to him? <clears throat> Brought him in, and he kind of comes in sort of like you'd lead some disabled person, you know, mm -hmm. like he didn't quite have his full mind or something. Here he was. He was a, a, a good soldier in Korea, got wounded, came back, and the VA gave him 100% disability, and he quit. And he was in his 30s. By the time he was about 40 to 50, I can't remember when he came in, the guy was almost like a vegetable. Mm. He, he just sat home and did nothing. And I remember that striking me, just exactly what you were saying yeah. is, you know, yes, we took care of him, the country took care of their wounded soldier, but at the same time we set him up for his own demise. Failure. Sure. You know, well, because we're not built to your, just sit and do nothing. Your mind, your cognitive function. Do you function. think that's yeah. why anxiety is such a, a issue today is because we don't have to worry about a, a, a you know, a bear attacking us. We don't have to worry about and, firewood. We don't have to worry yeah. about clean water. Yeah. Go look at go look at some of the animals out there. They don't have anxiety disorders. Right. They are quick. They're vigilant almost always, just yeah. like a soldier is in a war zone. Yeah. Because you got to be because something may be lurking around the corner. But what they have is the primary basis to anxiety, which is fear. Yeah. It's like when something comes out at you, they get scared, full of energy. They can run like well heck or fight like heck. But when it's over, they're back to calm and, right. you know, life is okay. That, that yeah. was actually when you were asking them advice on, uh, you know, what, what you would tell people to help. And George led with a golden rule, rule which as Christian and Catholic, it, that hits and home it, with and me it's, too. And it should cross you, everything. You actually gave me advice on that. We were we were at a, on anxiety. We were at, a I think, a holiday party or something. And somebody had come up and talked to us, and they were just, oh, I can't do that, my anxiety. And, and then they left, and me and you were chatting. I was like, yeah, you know, I, other people's opinions, I guess, just don't don't drive. Like, I don't sit and ruminate on that. And... And you said, you know what, out of all the years that I've been doing this, that's the one thing with anxiety I wish I could get other people to understand is that people don't give a shit about you. <laughs> You're thinking about other people thinking about you more than they're actually thinking about you. And they're too busy thinking about themselves. Because everyone's thinking about themselves. <laughs> and if I could get people to understand that everyone's so self-focused and not as you know paying attention to you as you think they are, yeah. anxiety would be cured for a lot of people. Yeah. My, my, uh, my grandfather used to always say that when you're in your 20s, you worry what everybody thinks. When you're in your 40s, you don't care what anybody thinks. And when you get to your 60s, you realize no one was ever thinking of you in the first place. <laughs> yeah, that's an that's a yeah. eloquent way of putting it. It is. Yeah. And there's some truth to that, yeah, by the way. It makes perfect sense. I mean, it just it See, all kind of comes together. You yeah. know, the, the thing about wisdom, which I think is unfortunate that the only way you learn it is with experience and age. You know, the yeah. wisdom you acquired wasn't in school. No. It was through your yeah. experience. Absolutely. And the same for all of us. And, and you grow older and you finally get it. You're not that important in this world. Mm -hmm. The world will go on with or without you. It doesn't matter. And it was okay that you weren't that important. You still had the opportunity to have a decent life. You know? yeah. So all of these things we worry about, when you look back from the position like I'm in, 
you just go, oh my God, I wish I wish I knew right. better. I right. spent yeah. so much energy on stuff I didn't have to. No need for. Right. Is this yeah. a good time, Jake? Yeah, I think it probably is. Yeah. Uh, so, George, we always like to wrap up each episode by asking a, a series of questions. Now, you answered question two a few minutes ago, so... Okay. Uh, uh, which is, I always ask everyone if you could do it all over again, would you? And you said basically blatantly, yeah, I mean, I, I did it right. But uh, <coughs> kind of an introspective question. If you could go back in time and talk to younger George, what would you tell him? A lot of what we were talking about, I, I, I would tell myself, because back, remember, younger George was always worried about the fact that people would find out he was a Russian little kid in America. Yeah. And then he went on to other irrational beliefs and stuff but i would i would say you know you're as good as anybody it doesn't matter what your background is what matters is what you do you know how you act right and and that's that and don't worry about what people say or think if i could have if i could have incorporated that years ago man i'd have been a superstar (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seems like from what are. from yeah. what you're telling us and what I've heard from these guys about you, you're already kind of a superstar. Well, a bigger one. Uh, well, there you go. There maybe you go. maybe you go. I could have gotten to the point of having my jet plane. Uh, maybe. Yeah. You never know. Uh, all right. On a lighter note, on our way out, favorite barbecue food? Barbecue food? Yes. Well, barbecue pork. Yeah. Oh, I mean, uh, in this country. Yeah. Can't go wrong. Can't go wrong. It's good. You don't have to worry about the quality, yeah. especially around here. It yeah. seems like. Well, so. being from yeah. the East Coast, I thought you would have said like some sort of deli meat pastrami or something. Oh, like I, that. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, yeah. It's a little. I, I used to, I used to like that. They, you know, the subways we call them. Yeah. It was submarine sandwiches. It was Philly sandwiches. There was all kinds of names, but they, we had a lot of the Mediterranean influence, a lot of Italian, like so. You had sandwiches that really had a zing and mm-hmm. a good taste to them see, you know they weren't bland see i thought your roots were really going to come out and you were going to say my favorite barbecue <clears throat> is vodka yeah uh, <laughs> vodka listen, your russian roots listen, you know? yeah. I, I i watched my family and their friends get together and it was always around the table with vodka and and uh, uh little you know pieces of food that you yeah. you would uh, eat as you talked right. but they would sit have that bottle of vodka, pour a shot every so often, and just go on for hours. I don't know. And ashtrays, probably. Huh? And, and a lot of ashtrays, probably. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. back yeah. in that day. Yeah. And, that was just uh, the way it was. Yeah. It was right. the way it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, that back then, you could smoke wherever you were. I mean, homes would smell like cigarette oh, smoke yeah. all the time. Cars would. Yeah, for sure. Uh, George, cool. I can't thank you enough for coming in and joining us today, being a part of the show. We really appreciate the, you know, telling your well, story and, and spending some time with us today. It, uh, it means a lot to us, so thank you. Uh, you're welcome, and I appreciate you guys inviting me. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, well, thanks and, for sharing with us. It goes without saying, but thanks for everything you've done for, you know, the community and the, and the veterans and uh, just, you know, being being you. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for your thanks, service. George. Yeah, yeah, thank I, you. I, I want to thank you. I, uh, I heard about you. I got to meet you. Yeah. And you I like you. He's not, <laughs> he's not nearly as bad yeah. as you he's thought, a, he's is he? He's a good guy. Hey. This guy has already been hey. on my good list, so you, I don't have to You talk set to me him. up for my favorite joke. And just think, Go George. Go ahead. And just think, George, I'm half the man I used to be. <laughs> <laughs>
I usually, usually I'd say about Mike, uh, uh, this guy's not half bad. He's all bad. But with, yeah. with, with Jack, he's just half I bad. Just half bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's good. Uh, oh, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Remember, you can uh, you can download this podcast and hear the uh, full show in its entirety wherever you get your podcast, as well as uh, KTOE.com. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Strength from Service. This is the Strength from Service podcast.